Before coming to the table of the Lord, let's turn in our Bibles together to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. We're focused this morning on one verse only, and that's verse 21, but I would like to begin reading at verse 11. Let's together bow in prayer. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we ask in the name of the Savior, the Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit will bless as we now turn to your word. And we ask that the Holy Spirit, who has given this book by divine inspiration, will now illumine its page to our heart's understanding. You know us exhaustively. You know our need. And we pray that the gospel of your Son, through which alone we can be saved, will penetrate heart and mind, and that it will rule our affections. Grow us in grace as your people. Deepen our understanding of what Christ has done for us. And for those among us who do not know the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you will open their hearts, that they also may be saved from their sins. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 11. This is the word of God. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised." From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's look at that verse again, verse 21. For our sake he, that is God the Father, made him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. We are about to look at the grandest theme in the Bible. Here is the core of the gospel, and I pray that the Lord will enable this minister to make it plain. Now let's begin with this. 
The Bible is clear that we are condemned and under God's wrath due to our sin and that the only way for us to be saved is through a sinless substitute. And the Bible is clear that there is only one substitute that can save us sinners from our sins, only one who could pay the price of sin, and that is Jesus Christ our Lord. Now allow me to direct your attention to an old illustration from Augustus Toplady. You know Augustus Toplady, the 18th century Anglican minister who wrote Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, and many other hymns that we sing together. He wrote an article that was entitled, The National Debt. Now we all know what a national debt is. Well, there was a national debt in England in the 18th century as well. Well, it was a very catching title, but he wasn't talking about the debt that the government owed He was talking about the money, that is the price, that is the payment, that is the debt that we sinners owe to God. And he said, suppose this, suppose that we sinners sin once in 24 hours. Well, that won't do, will it? We know that it's more than that. So he says, well, let's double that. And then let's say, well, no, let's say once in every hour of life. Well, that won't work either about once every minute. And then he said, well, once every second. That's closer to the truth. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches that anything that we do outside of Christ that is not to His glory, even those things that we might consider horizontally good, are sin in the eyes of God because they are not done to His glory nor from a heart that is for His glory. So once in every second is closer to the mark, even though really it's all of life at all times. So he said, let's, let's add it up. In this view of the matter, our dreadful account stands as following. At 10 years old, each of us is chargeable with 315 millions and 36,000 sins. At 20, with 630 millions and 720,000 sins. At 30, with 946 millions and 80,000 sins. At age 40, with 1,261,440,000 sins. At age 50, 1,576,800,000 sins. At 60, 1,892,160,000 sins. At 70, 2,207,520,000 sins. At 80, with... 2,522,800,000 sins. And then he asks the question, when shall we be able to pay off this immeasurable debt? Now, my friends, that's why we need a substitute. You consider, we are fallen in Adam, and we also commit ourselves sin, but one sin is deserving of God's infinite displeasure because of his infinite holiness. Who can pay it? When can you pay it? Can you pay that debt? And the answer, of course, is no. You and I cannot pay that debt. The Bible teaches that the debt must be paid, and only one could pay that debt, and that is Christ the substitute for sinners. And this is the very core of the Bible's message. If you are to be saved from sin, you and I must have a substitute. Now let's be more specific by looking at verse 21. If you and I are to be saved from sin, 
You and I must have a substitute. This is the first thing. You and I must have a substitute who is absolutely holy. Absolutely holy. Verse 21, for our sake he made him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the one who became sin for us, the one who is, and let me stress, absolutely holy. We think of a godly man and we say he's a holy man, but here we're talking about essential holiness, the holiness of God himself. He knew no sin. Now, why is this necessary? That we have one who is our substitute who is absolutely sinless, absolutely holy. Well, the reason is because the very issue is sin. The cross has significance not only for us, but also for God. The cross is Godward. So you ask the question, well, can't God just forgive sin? And I say reverently, no. God cannot simply, by divine fiat, simply forgive sin. There must be a substitute. Sin deserves eternal punishment. Justice must be met. God's honor means that sin must be punished with infinite punishment. Now, who could pay that price? Could you? You could be in hell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever paying the price, and still the price would not be paid. One who is sinless, the Son of God, must pay the price of sin. And throughout the scriptures, it is stressed that the Son of God is sinless. For example, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, uh, we read, You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Or we could look together at uh, the book of uh, Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, we read, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Or in chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews, uh, verse uh, 15, For we do not have an high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, respect has been tempted as we are, yet with out sin. Or we could look together again at uh, the book of First Peter. And there in First Peter, we read in chapter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. The scriptures constantly emphasize that Christ, who came to save us, was himself without any sin. Only he could keep God's law. Only he could pay the penalty of a broken law. Only he could pay the debt that we owed without himself breaking God's law. Only he could endure the full wrath of God that we deserved. So the hymn writer says beautifully, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Only our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is without sin, who is the second person of the Trinity, who assumed human nature, only He could save us from our sins. 
born of the Virgin by the Holy Spirit. He is impeccable. He is sinless. Never sinned in Adam. Never once broke God's law. A lamb without spot and without blemish. Now think of it. The Lord Jesus Christ never needed to bend the knee and say, Father, I have sinned. He taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer for the forgiveness of our debts, but he did not himself need to pray that prayer because he had no personal, internal acquaintance with sin. Imagine that. Holy, sinless, undefiled, He had no personal acquaintance with sin, but I do and you do. And because of that, we have broken the infinite infinite law of God, the Holy One, and we deserve to pay the debt eternally. He did not. We do. So what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And this is how God can be just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus because the justice of God was met when our divine substitute substituted himself for us on the cross and the justice of God was met. The penalty was paid and paid in full. That's the Holy Son of God, the sinless Son of God, my substitute. So we learn right from the text, verse 21, that the substitute we need must be a sinless substitute. But also the substitute that you and I must have if we are to be saved from our sins, we learn secondly, is that you and I must have a substitute who is accounted sin for you. That is, upon whom, as the Father looks, He sees your sin accounted to Him, reckoned to Him, imputed to Him, rather than to you. That's what it means that He is a substitute. And we see that in verse 21. For our sake He made him to be sin. Do you see it? The language is arresting, isn't it? Christ was made, it says, to be sin. He made him to be sin in his suffering for our sin. Now don't misunderstand the text. We have already said that Jesus is holy. He was never morally a sinner. Never was he internally a sinner. But in the eyes of God's law, he bore our sin, and in the eyes of God's law, he was, as he bore our sin, sin itself in the Father's sight. Now this is an awe-filled consideration. Do you remember in the Gospels, and as you read in the Gospels, Jesus is moving toward the cross, and he makes statements like this. My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Why was this? Why was it that his soul was sorrowful as he moved toward the cross? Was it only because of the physical pain that he would suffer? Was it only because of the rejection of men? No, 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 not at all. Jesus' soul was exceeding sorrowful even unto death because the sinless Son of God knew 
that his holy body and soul would bear all of the sins of all of his people through all of the ages. The holy son of God, our sin bearer. How was the sinless son made sin before God's just law? Well, the answer is by legal transfer. The great word that is used here is the word imputation. We actually see it in verse 19 of this chapter. Look at it. That is, in Christ, God reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now that word, not counting, is legal transfer or impute. The point, our sins were not counted to us because they were counted to Christ. Our sins were not imputed to our account because our sins were imputed to Christ. Your sins, believer, were not reckoned to you that would have drugged you down to hell for eternity because they were reckoned legally to Jesus Christ, not counted to you, but counted to Christ so that his righteousness might be reckoned to you. Believers are accepted as righteous, perfect before the law of God, legally in the court of law, sinless, perfectly accepted because your sin was reckoned to Christ and his righteousness reckoned to you. Isaac Watts would have us sing, The Spirit wrought my faith and love and hope and every grace, but Jesus spent his life to work the robe of righteousness. And this is true. In his obedience to the law and his paying the penalty of the law, he wove for us this robe of righteousness that completely covers our sin. So the text teaches us that our substitute was actually in the eyes of the law of God in all of its perfection counted a sinner. Imagine that. The second person of the Trinity, the sinless Son of God, was counted a sinner in the eyes of the law in God's court of law. That's what it means in Galatians 3.13 when it says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is what Isaiah prophesied of old in Isaiah 53 when he says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The glory of it is found in the words for us. Look at verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He did this for us. He did this for you. Who per hemon in the place of sinners as our righteous substitute. And so the biblical doctrine is in my place condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So in 1 Peter 2.24 we read, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So Christ bore our sin. 
and he took the penalty of the law. That is, he bore our hell. That's really what it means. If I paid the debt, I would be paying the debt in hell forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. But the wrath of God will not be poured out upon the believer because the wrath of God, hell if you will, has been poured out on Christ. His infinite nature giving to his finite sufferings infinite value so that no matter who you are or what your sins have been, when you trust in Christ, the infinite value of his sacrifice completely pardons your sin. My, what a glorious gospel this is. He bore my hell. You know, it's become increasingly in the church, it's become popular nowadays to apologize for the doctrine of hell or to deny the doctrine of hell. But to apologize for hell is to apologize for the justice of God. It is to remove the attribute of justice from our understanding of who God is. Take away hell and you take away God's justice Take away justice and you take away the atonement by which God the just can accept sinners. The doctrine of hell is necessary. Charles Spurgeon said it so beautifully about Christ's substitution. It's as if Christ were saying this, My Father, treat me as if I were a sinner. Treat the sinner as if he were me. (laughs) Smite me sternly as you please, for I will bear it. And thus the bowels of your love may overflow with grace, and yet your justice will be unsullied. For the sinner is no sinner now. He stands in Christ's stead, and with the Savior's garments on, he is accepted. My friends, can you hear this in your heart not be moved? The sinner, are you a sinner? The sinner in God's court of law, is no sinner now. Not in God's court. The sinner is no sinner now because Christ said, Father, treat me as the sinner. Treat the believer as if he were me. Thirdly, you must have a substitute who can merit salvation, earn it, who can merit salvation. Verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that in him we might become, that is in the eyes of God's law, judicially in God's court, accepted and righteous. That's merit. Now get this. Mercy and merit do not belong together. You can never deserve mercy. Uh, A criminal comes into the court of law, he can't look at the judge and say, you owe me mercy, can he? You and I never earn mercy. Mercy is not earned. As sinners, we have no merit at all. 
The wages of sin is death. We have no righteousness of our own. Our own. We are by nature utterly condemned by God's justice. Jesus said that in John 3.18, that if you do not believe, you're under condemnation. Christ provides for His people the righteousness that we need, the merit that we need, the infinitely valuable merit. And that is what the text means, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The merit we need is imputed righteousness. In our place, in our stead, Christ was condemned that everyone who believes in Him should be righteous in the Father's court. Christ's righteousness imputed, transferred legally to our account constitutes us righteous so that we who believe in Christ are perfect in the eyes of the law. So someone is here this morning and you think, I'm a pretty good guy. I uh, help the poor. I'm concerned about people. I show love to my family. I surely have earned righteousness. Turn your Bibles with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. If ever there has been a man who sought to be obedient to the law of God in his life, and that you might thought if anyone merited salvation, it would have been Paul the Apostle, wouldn't it? Well, look at what he says in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, beginning with verse 7. He talks about his, uh, his credentials. Well, let's go on, actually, let's go up to about verse 3. Uh, For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anybody could boast, it's me, says Paul. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So here are my credentials. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the true tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him. Now look at this. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And you see what Paul says? If anybody could have merited, it's me. I had all of the credentials, greater credentials than anyone. But then I found that I had no merit. And the righteousness I needed was the righteousness of Christ. And that righteousness, that pardon, that forgiveness, that acceptance is received simply by faith. No works, nothing you do, it is altogether by grace through faith. So I want to bring this to conclusion with two applications, just two, before coming to the table. The first is to say, believer in Jesus, believer 
God's justice does not sleep. And glad you should be. In Christ, who died for our sins, who stood in your place as your sin bearer, you are perfectly accepted, and because of the justice of God, you will always be perfectly accepted. Now please grasp this. There is nothing with which you can be charged in God's court. On the cross, your debt has been legally canceled, paid in full. And that is why it would be contrary to justice for you to be charged with a debt that has already been paid. You know the old hymn, Beneath the Cross of Jesus? You know the hymn. I wonder why we so often take the best verses out of hymns. The best verses are taken out of the hymns. You don't know these verses, probably. Beneath the cross of Jesus. These verses say, O safe and happy shelter, O refuge tried and sweet, O trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. As to the holy patriarch, what wondrous dream was given So seems my Savior's cross to me, a ladder up to heaven. There lies beneath its shadow, but on the further side, the darkness of an awful grave that gapes both deep and wide. And there between us stands the cross, two arms outstretched to save, a watchman set to guard the way from that eternal grave. Why are you kept from the eternal grave of hell? It is because you had a Savior who went to a cross where love and justice kissed each other. There they met. The love of God shown in the cross. God demonstrates his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And there the justice of God was spent to completion on your Savior as your substitute in your place so that the true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will never, 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 never be lost. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus If thou my discharge hast procured and fully in my stead endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. If justice has been met, if the price has been paid, then you don't owe it any longer and you will never owe it, Christian. Think of that as you come to the table of the Lord and we participate in the broken body and shed blood by symbol. But then the second thing is this. There are undoubtedly those here who have not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. And I'd like to ask that you look at verse 20. Where Paul says, therefore, on the basis of these truths, therefore... 
We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So Paul the Apostle and preachers after him call to this office our ambassadors. We're not speaking for ourselves. We're expounding God's word. We are ambassadors calling you, imploring you in God's stead. God himself through his minister is calling to you. Be reconciled to God. Understand the weight of condemnation you are under. Understand that you are hell-deserving, that we all are, that apart from a sinless substitute, you are lost and you are undone. May the best of news of Jesus' shed blood and broken body and resurrection break through to your heart. Charles Spurgeon said that he had a little... uh, a little something he would do in his congregation from time to time. This is from his autobiography. On various occasions, the Lord has set his seal upon a very simple request that I have made to my congregation. I asked those who were present after they reached their homes to spend a little time quietly and alone, and then when they had honestly considered their condition in the sight of God, to take a pencil and paper and to write one of two words— If they felt that they were not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, I asked them to write the word condemned. But if they were trusting to him alone for salvation, to put on the paper the word forgiven. Several friends were brought to Christ in that way. Amongst them was one young man who at first wrote the word condemned, but as he looked at it, his tears began to flow and his heart began to break. And before long, he fled to Christ, put the paper in the fire, took another piece, wrote on it the word forgiven, and soon came to tell me the good news and to ask that he might be admitted to church fellowship. In another case, a man went home and told his wife that he was going to write the word condemned. She pleaded with him in vain, for he took the pencil and was about to make the letter C. But his little daughter, a Christian girl, caught hold of his hand and said, No, Father, you shall not write that. And by the united entreaties of his wife and child, the man was brought to the Savior, and afterwards he became a member of the church because he trusted in Christ. If you were to go home today and spend some time reflecting, am I under the condemning wrath of God because I'm a sinner? Or have I trusted in Jesus and I'm forgiven? Would you write on the paper condemned? Or would you write on the paper forgiven? And I know I was once lost. I know what it is to flee to those things that you think that will get you by and will save you, and sometimes they are the most ridiculous things. I remember hearing W.A. Criswell once say that he went to the hospital to see a man about his need of the Savior. There he is in his hospital bed, probably near death, I'm assuming, and Dr. Criswell presented him the gospel. He held up a ring. He was in a lodge, a Masonic lodge or something of that nature. He held, held up his ring, and he said, this will get me into heaven. Dr. Criswell said, are you serious? Yeah, the man was serious. This will get me into heaven. Well, my friends, let's stop preaching the gospel and give out rings. 
No, it will not get you into heaven. Nothing it represents will get you into heaven. No work that you do will get you into heaven. You need this message. You need this Savior. You need, you must have, you must have this sinless substitute. There is no other person, no other name under heaven given whereby men must be saved. Jesus is the only Savior, the only Redeemer. Great thing. I've mentioned the 59 revival to you on numbers of occasions there in Northern Ireland. I read a story from the 59 revival just this week. You know what a communion token is, don't you? Uh, In Presbyterian circles in years gone by, uh, for you to come to the table, you had to have gone to a service the week before that was in preparation for coming. And you would be given a little uh, lead token uh, called a communion token. And it's like a ticket. In order to come to the table, you had to press the token into the minister's hand. So there was a token that someone had lost after the service. It was found by a young wife, a young Roman Catholic girl. And she read on this little token, this do in remembrance of me. And it almost drove her nuts, drove her insane. Because the Holy Spirit took it to her heart and she realized, I'm a sinner. God used that simple means to convict her of her sin. So her husband didn't know what to do. He was about to call the priest. She said, no, if you're going to call anybody, call the Presbyterian minister. So they sent for him and the tale goes on saying as on arriving he saw in a moment what the matter was and he said the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. He offered up a short and simple prayer and he left. Later he saw her and she was completely composed and happy. And he said, what's happened? And she said, well, I, I trusted in Christ. I believed in the gospel. I, I believed in my sinless substitutes. And so he said, well, now that you're not going to need that communion token, uh, we have only a few of them. Will you give it back? She said, oh, no, I cannot give it to you. I will never part with it till I put it in your own hand sitting at the communion table. And then the writer says, Are not God's ways very wonderful? The losing of a token, the finding of a soul. What a powerful preacher is that bit of lead. And what an exciting sermon the words, This do in remembrance of me when they are blessed by the Spirit of God. A well-known minister, his wife was unconverted, sat in the communion service, and when she saw the bread broken one day, The Lord broke her heart, gave her saving faith, and she trusted in Jesus. My hope is that as God's people once again rejoice in the gospel as we come to the table, that someone here today that doesn't know Christ, when you hear the words, this do in remembrance of me, that God the Holy Spirit may break your heart, give you saving faith, show you your need of the sinless substitute that you may put your faith in Christ alone, alone for your salvation. And God's people said...